House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Okay, welcome back into the House of Mystery, and now it's time for the interview today. Uh, today, I have a special guest, and we're going back to the Old West, and we're going to be talking about Wyatt Earp, and the book we're referring to is called Ride the Devil's Herd. It's Wyatt Earp's epic battle against the West's biggest outlaw gang, and with us is the author of the book, John Bosnecker. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Perfect. Um, did I get the name right? <laughs> you did. <laughs> it's such a horrible name to pronounce, I never get offended at mispronunciations. Yeah, well, you know, I, I what I did was I kept listening over at the beginning part of the audio book to get it. <laughs> so, uh, now, let's talk about your background, because you've been on this show before. So now you, um, what got you into writing about uh a Western sort of situation, and Wyatt Earp. Well, I grew up on Westerns when I was a young boy in the early 60s. And uh, when I got to uh, high school, I started to wonder what the real West was all about. So I started uh, reading everything I could get my hands on, and then I soon found that I enjoyed writing. So I... Uh, sold my first article to a Western magazine about a stagecoach holdup in 1968 when I was only a freshman in high school. Hmm. And I've been, I've been at it ever since. What, so what do you think the fascination is with, in, as, as far as Westerns go, um, in the 1800s, it seems like there's a lot of uh, movies and media and attention toward people like Wyatt Earp or Billy the Kid and several others. What is that fascination that holds on to the... Because a lot of them were criminals, actually. Well, there's been a fascination with the frontier since well before the Civil War. The uh, uh, fur trappers uh, became well-known before the Civil War. Uh, the gold seekers in 1849 to California uh, really captured the public's uh, imagination and this whole idea of a frontier that always beckoned and always provided hope for a new life, a place where people could come and reinvent themselves, make a fortune, escape bad family, escape bad debts, escape bad society. It was a, an outlet, a safety valve, and uh, it was something that just became ingrained into the American psyche uh, uh, early in the uh, 19th century, in the early 1800s, and stays with us today. So when we go to the uh, Wild West, as we call it, um, let's set the atmosphere. So what was going on in the days of Wyatt Earp? What was it like to live um, in, a, in a typical town like Tombstone or, or anywhere in Arizona? Uh, what was our lifestyle like back then? It was definitely not anything that you would like today. People always ask me, oh, wouldn't you just have been, uh, love to have been alive and living on the frontier in 1880? And I say, absolutely not. There was no deodorant. There was no toilet paper. There was no Advil if you got a headache. There was no uh, hay fever medication. You know, life was tough back then. 
and people were tough, women and men. So for anybody to be in Arizona Territory prior to 1881, the only way to get there was to ride a horse to come in on a covered wagon or a stagecoach. You had to be a pretty tough person to be anywhere in the West, uh, men or women. So they were a different breed, and uh, the life, uh, like I say, the life in Tombstone was, uh, because Tombstone was a boom town, and it was uh, uh, based on the discovery of silver in the hills in southern Arizona. And uh, Ed Shefflin, who's the man who discovered Tombstone, when he went out on a prospecting expedition in the 1870s, the soldiers told him, don't go down there, it's full of Apaches. And he said, no, I have to go, I have to go, I'm looking for my fortune. And they said, the only thing you'll find down there is your tombstone. And so when he found this incredible mine, he named it the Tombstone, and then the town of Tombstone sprang up uh, adjacent to the mine that he found. And then many, many other mines were then founded in the nearby uh, area. So uh, how well were people educated back then? Uh, was there any type of school, schools at that time or anything like that? Uh, most Americans had maybe a 6th to 8th grade education. College-educated Americans were highly unusual. Even in the East Coast, the vast majority of people had uh, a grammar school education, if that. So you had people that uh, generally were literate, so um, the newspapers were the principal way of communicating news, obviously, at that, in that era, and the vast majority of Americans could read. So uh, that's why I think historically newspapers, I don't know about today, but historically newspapers were written uh, for the average sixth grader to be able to read and understand them, and that's because that was the level of education available for a hundred years in the United States. Maybe that's what they need to do again. Um, they <laughs> now, medical, um, what kind of um, doctoring did they have? So if someone was shot, um, did they have a good chance of surviving or was it really kind of not? The good thing about getting shot in the Old West is that the uh, charges that were carried in Colt 44 and 45 revolvers were nowhere near as powerful as those in a modern uh, weapon. So if you got shot by a 44, which is typically what was fired in a Winchester rifle or in a Colt single-action revolver, uh, if the bullet struck you in a, you know, a sensitive spot like your heart or some people it's not that sensitive or maybe their head, which isn't that sensitive for some people either. But uh, that would, you know, probably kill you. But most people, uh, people would frequently survive wounds simply because the firearms weren't as powerful, uh, not because there was great medical care. Now, there was medical care. In Tombstone, uh, there were several famous doctors who became well-known for treating gunshot wounds because the level of violence was extremely high on the American frontier. So there were awful lot of shootings, and famous Dr. Goodfellow, for example, later wrote articles for the uh, American Medical Association about the proper way to treat gunshot wounds, and he was not a military doctor. He was a civil doctor in Tombstone. Uh, 
That's back when they didn't even really wash their hands before they operated. I think the germ theory was coming in at that point. And I think that, uh, but yes, the medical care was pretty uh, poor. The child mortality rate was very, very high. A lot of women died in childbirth. Uh, there was uh, many, you know, kind of topical today. We've got this coronavirus. You had many uh, medical issues that uh, caused people to die back in the 19th century, especially in the frontier regions. And uh, so the life expectancy was much lower back then. Yeah, I would imagine. The, um, now, so Wyatt Earp is the uh, center of the book. Um, maybe, maybe give us a little rundown on who Wyatt Earp was. And like he started out as a criminal, didn't he? Well, Wyatt Earp was uh, a, you know, today he's the most famous lawman in American history. If you run a Google search on Wyatt Earp. He gets a lot more hits than J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI and the father of the modern 20, 20th century policing. Uh, so J. Edgar Hoover uh, is not as well known as Wyatt Earp is, which gives an indication of what a uh, legacy that Earp left. He's the quintessential American gunfighter, the quintessential lawman, walking with his brothers and Doc Holliday down the streets of Tombstone to confront the outlaws. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> He's the quintessential American lawman walking down the streets of Tombstone to confront the outlaws at the OK Corral. But he was uh, essentially just a farm boy from Illinois. He had a very checkered background. And this is something that really wasn't known until the mid-90s when a uh, local historian in Peoria, Illinois, was reading through the old newspapers, and he repeatedly finds accounts of Wyatt Earp and Morgan Earp being arrested for uh, running uh, uh, brothels and uh, essentially for being pimps. And this was a rumor that had spread in prior years, but there was never any confirmation of it. And uh, some Wyatt Earp aficionados immediately said, no, 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 that's a different Wyatt Earp. Well, a lot of research has been done since in the last 20 years and has shown without a doubt that Wyatt and his brothers were all pimps, all of them. Even Virgil Earp uh, was married to a prostitute, and Virgil is generally seen to be the most um, moral and upright of the brothers, and so the brothers had a very checkered background before they finally went to Kansas, and they ended up in places like Wichita and Dodge City. Wyatt was a police officer in these Kansas cow towns and sort of began to reform. And so by the time the brothers decided, we're going to go to Arizona and see if we can make our fortune in Tombstone, uh, they all had backgrounds in law enforcement. What do you think drew him into law enforcement? I, uh, Wyatt and his brothers were principally uh, gamblers. They eventually got out of the. They, they were sort of uh, in these this sort of uh, what was called the demimonde, the underworld uh, of uh, American society, and so they they got involved in uh, pimping, prostitution, gambling running saloons, 
because this was an escape from the drudgery of farm work. They were looking for a more exciting life, maybe keep your hands uncalloused. And uh, eventually uh, they found that policing was something that was more reputable and it didn't involve the heavy labor involved in, uh, in farm work. And so the brothers all, uh, Wyatt, uh, Morgan, and uh, their younger brother, uh, uh, Warren, even, and Virgil, all uh, got involved in law enforcement. So now we've all seen uh, movies about uh, the OK Corral and Tombstone and that sort of thing. Um, is, is most of it reported pretty accurately, like what you see in those movies, or is there quite a, quite a different story to that? The... 1993 movie Tombstone starring Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer <clears throat> I tell everybody if you don't watch the first five minutes and you don't watch the last ten minutes it's one of the finest westerns ever filmed and it's very accurate in its portrayal of the Earp brothers there is a reference to them there are to their wives having been prostitutes before they came to Tombstone and so that movie in particular is is fairly accurate, and there's a long reason why it is. Kevin Jarr got an expert uh, who's a friend of mine named Jeff Morey, who's one of the leading authorities on Wyatt Earp and has been for more than 40 years, and got Jeff to be the technical advisor for the film. And so that's why the language is amazing and true to the time, the clothing the weapons, uh, the hairstyles, uh, the women's clothing, the way the women act, it's all very, very true to that period of time. Most of the other movies about Wyatt Earp are absolutely god-awful. They're just mind-bogglingly horrible. They're just, just, uh, just fantasy. Uh, so that's the, the range from fantastic to abysmal. Uh, well, I think the uh, even when you watch old westerns, like I'm watching me TV all the time, and Saturday's all cowboys. A lot of those shows, I, I think they sort of don't. They're not really true, you know. It, it there's something too too produced about it. And most of them are. My wife cannot go with me to a western film because I drive her crazy. I'm constantly telling her that kind of gun wasn't invented then. They didn't, that language that they're using didn't uh, exist then. And, and I'll t a, a typical thing would be you're watching a movie that's set during the Civil War, and the actors are all carrying uh, Model 1873 Colt revolvers, and you'd think that one of the actors would look at the barrel of the gun where it says Colt model uh, 1873, patent date 1873 on it, and say to the producer of the film, hey, wait a minute, we're supposed to be in the Civil War. This gun wasn't invented until eight years after the war was over. Why are we? <laughs> but that never happens. It, it, uh, it just doesn't happen. And, and so the you know, the, there's just so many inaccuracies, and that's why the film Tombstone was such a massive success, because it was believable. Yeah, 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 it's it's crazy, and yeah, you're right, a lot of times I'll, I watch for the phrases people say, and sometimes even, it, it, it always matches the era that they're filming the show in, and a lot of the sayings 
weren't correct. You know, they say it like it's 1960, not like it's 1860. No, and that's why the movie Tombstone, the slang that they use, the swearing, it's all taken from primary sources, such as newspaper accounts, court records. And so when Doc Holliday says, I'm your Huckleberry, that comes from an old source. When they use slang in the film, it's slang from 1881, not from 1971. There's a scene in the movie starring Steve McQueen called Tom Horn about the famous gunfighter who went up to Wyoming and got mixed up in the cattle wars. And McQueen is breaking, he's bucking a Bronco, he's breaking a horse. And one of the cowboys yells at him so he doesn't get thrown off. The cowboy yells at him, hang in there. Well, that term, hang in there, was a term from the 1970s, not the 1880s or 1890s. So that that kind of thing illustrates the problem that the, the screenwriters, if they would do their due diligence and make the and, and make things a bit better then maybe the films would be more uh, successful the the example that i always bring up is uh downton abbey uh, is a good uh contrast the british can get it right i don't understand how it's possible the british in downton abbey when a scene is set in 1905 the men and women are wearing the fashions from 1905 when the story progressed to 1915, the women's hair was from 1915. The fashions were from 1915. So, if, and, and the language is directly out of that period. So if the Brits can get it w- right, why can't the Americans? I just don't understand that. <laughs> well, it's still happening. I just I watched that uh, the Hunter series on uh, uh, Prime Video and. Uh, you know, this is supposed to be taking place in 68 and the 70s, and uh, and they would use terms like, oh, I'm sorry for your loss, and all of these modern terms were, were written right into the script, and it, I, I find it just throws the show. And that's the problem with so many Westerns. The, uh, the Italian or spaghetti Westerns are particularly onerous to me <laughs> because they're filmed in these old ghost towns with creaky... Uh, uh, wood walls and the holes in the walls and the buildings are all falling apart and earth to spaghetti westerns these were new towns in the 19th century they were ghost towns now but back then they were new so why would the towns be ghost towns back then i mean it's just it's just these fundamental problems with logic that drive me me particularly and all my western friends uh, who are Western buffs and Western uh, collectors and historians. It drives us all crazy. Now, one other thing about the uh, Wyatt Earp. Now, is it true he was friends with Billy the Kid or not? No. Uh, Wyatt Earp uh, never met Billy the Kid. The, the connection was that the Cowboys, and my book is the first book to actually tell the full story about how Wyatt Earp ended up in the empty lot next to the O.K. Corral. The gunfight did not happen in the O.K. Corral. It happened in this empty lot behind it. The reason that he got there, you have to go back uh, to the early 1870s and the development of these gangs of outlaws in New Mexico territory, one of whom was Billy the Kid. And so you had these gangs of outlaws that... 
uh, formed that got involved in the Lincoln County War, which is one of the bloodiest civil disturbances of the uh, American West. And in the Lincoln County War, Billy the Kid emerged as one of the top fighters for one of the two factions. And at the end of the Lincoln County War, these gangs of outlaws kind of dispersed, and a group of them came to California. I'm sorry. These gangs of outlaws dispersed, and then a group of them came into Arizona Territory. And there they formed this gang that became called the Cowboys. And so the Cowboys, as we think of it today, are just these happy-go-lucky guys that like to know Roy Rogers, and they like to sing and herd cattle. But in the 1870s and 1880s, the term cowboy was a derogative term in the Southwest. In the 1870s and 80s, the term cowboy was a derogative term, and it meant outlaw, cutthroat, smuggler, murderer, robber. And so this loosely organized gang that became known as the Cowboys organized in southern Arizona, and there was a probably uh, about 150 of them. Uh, there were estimates that they were as many as 300, but about 150 seems about right, maybe 200 at the most. And they were a loosely organized gang, sort of along the lines of a modern-day youth street gang. And they had, they wore uh, rattlesnake hat bands. Uh, they were all known to each other. And they weren't organized sort of like the mafia or the Casa Nostra is or was. But they were uh, loosely organized. They all kind of operated. Uh, they knew each other. They'd get together for bandit raids. And they caused a series of international incidents because they would go down into Mexico and they would rob uh these towns in Mexico, they would steal cattle, drive them up to the United States, then they would steal cattle in the U.S. on the Arizona side, drive them down into Sonora in northern Mexico for sale. And so this created a series of diplomatic incidents involving the President of the United States. He finally issued an order uh, telling the cowboys they had to retire and disperse to your homes, which, which is laughable. These guys lived in the saddle, and uh, nobody could catch them, and nobody stood up to them until Wyatt Earp and his brothers finally uh, had a belly full and took them on in Tombstone. So how did how did Wyatt Earp come across them? Did they was it just their actions, or did they do something to him? Wyatt Earp. Uh, and his brothers came to uh, to Tombstone to make their fortune. And Earp later, uh, many years later, in a deposition that this incredible historian found at, uh, in a university on the East Coast, it found the transcript of a deposition of a civil lawsuit. And the reporter, this is in the 1920s, the reporter, uh, the attorney, and the court reporter takes this down. The attorney asks him, why did you go to Tombstone? And he says, I went there to start a stagecoach line. And uh, But when he got there, there's already two stagecoach lines in operation. So he then uh, began gambling. He and his brothers uh, uh, set up gambling games in a couple of the saloons in town. And then because of their background as law officers, they soon uh, were hired as lawmen. Virgil Earp 
who had experience as a lawman, pretty pretty good experience as a lawman, uh, was appointed uh, uh, city marshal or chief of police of Tombstone, and then he would use his brothers as special officers. And so in that capacity, uh, they were brought into conflict with the cowboys. They uh, there was a famous stagecoach robbery uh, in which the, a group of the cowboys ambushed a stage. And they made a big mistake because a guy named Bob Paul, who was more, far more famous than Wyatt Earp in the 19th century, he was riding shotgun. And he fought off the cowboys. The cowboys killed the driver, uh, and they killed a passenger. And so Wyatt Earp then made a deal with Ike Clanton, who was one of the leaders of the cowboy gang, that if Ike would uh, turn over to him or uh, act as an informant or a snitch, as they were called even back then, a stool pigeon, uh, those are 19th century terms, uh, that they would uh, uh, arrange to capture these robbers, and then Wyatt would pay the reward to Ike Clanton, and uh, uh, it didn't work out. These uh, cowboys were so reckless; they got themselves in a, into a, another gunfight and were killed by some other uh, characters instead of by Wyatt and his brothers. But Ike Clanton then became paranoid that his deal uh, to inform on his fellow cowboys would come out, and this is one of the. Uh, one of uh, numerous incidents that happened that led to friction between the cowboys and the Earps. But it was more uh, an effort by the Earps to enforce the law. When they got to Tombstone, they turned over new leaves in their lives. They, their, their women, who had all, all but one had been prostitutes, were accepted as respectable uh, wives, uh, even though most of the Earps had only common-law marriages, most of them did not have an actual civil marriage ceremony or, or marriage license. But the women were accepted, and, and things in the Old West were pretty rough. Uh, nobody asked your background. It was considered highly offensive to ask somebody where they came from because so many people had come from other parts of the country, other parts of the world, to reinvent themselves. And so Wyatt and his brothers... Uh, came to Tombstone for a new life, ended up in law enforcement, and that's what brought them into conflict with the biggest outlaw gang in American history. Uh, you know, um, so now this this went on for a number of years, didn't it? Like this wasn't over, like, real quick. No, the, the cowboy raids really began in the mid-1870s, uh, with these incidents that happened in New Mexico, and then it sort of morphed into the lead, uh, into the incidents that happened in Arizona Territory, where Curly Bill Brocious, uh, who was one of the leaders of the outlaws in New Mexico, uh, came into Arizona Territory with a bunch of his cutthroats from West Texas. They'd taken part in the El Paso Salt War. They took part in the Lincoln County War. And then they kept moving and came into Arizona Territory and had things their own way for years, and nobody stood up to them. Even the, uh, the United States Army was unable to deal with the cowboys because of the uh, federal law that prohibited the Army from enforcing civil laws. 
And so even though this was a territory, Arizona was not a state until 1912. This was a territory. It was governed by the federal territorial officers. The U.S. Army was powerless, and it was really left to the Earps. The sheriff of Tombstone, John Bean, was a brave man, had a long career uh, as a legislator and served as the warden of Yuma Prison in later years. He was a, uh, a brave man, but for political reasons, uh, he relied on the cowboys. He hired them as his deputies sometimes. Uh, they were all Democrats. The Earps were Republicans from the North. The cowboys were generally from Texas and from the southern states, so they were generally Democrats. And, and so uh, Bean uh, did a highly immoral thing by putting political expediency over public safety. And so he allowed these cowboys to come brazenly into Tombstone to cow the uh, business people and the mine owners, and this went on until the Earp brothers put a stop to it. Pretty amazing story. Now, Ride the Devil's Herd, where did the name come from? Well, one of my favorite uh, uh, songs is Ghost Riders in the Sky, and, and Johnny Cash does a fantastic rendition of it. You can see it on YouTube. And it's about a, uh, you know, the, the lyrics are about this cowboy who sinned, and uh, he uh, <clears throat> sees this group of, of cowboys that are condemned to uh, chasing uh, ghosts of cows through the sky and they chase them uh, interminably and they yell down at him cowboy if you don't change your ways then with us you will ride uh, uh, trying to catch the devil's herd and so catch the devil's herd is the term from the song but you can't really have a book called catch the devil's herd so ride the devil's herd sounded better so that's how i landed on the title it's just one of my favorite uh, song lyrics Johnny Cash, yeah, he's a guy from last century. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it goes fast. Um, now, one of the things you talk about is, uh, you know, border security. Now, so did they not really have any borders set up at all back then? There's essentially no border. Um, Latinos were Latinos, and they lived, you know, whether it was on the Rio Grande or New Mexico border, Arizona, your family, uh, this had been uh, Mexico for, you know, 200 years or more, 300 years. And so these families simply lived there, and the border was invisible. And uh, so this idea of illegal immigration, it just didn't exist. There was smuggling, because if you brought cattle or goods across the border, you're supposed to go to Nogales, you're supposed to go to El Paso, you're supposed to go to a customs office and pay the duty so the smuggling that happened was just to avoid duty there was no restriction on trade between the u.s and mexico and the mexican families that lived on both sides of the border would just go back and forth and my uncle lives in nogales and i live in hermosillo in sonora and so i'm going up to visit my uncle that's the way it was the cowboys caused the problems by going down into uh, Mexico and they murdered Mexican citizens just like they murdered American citizens and this created a huge 
uh, controversy between the two governments, and both governments were equally interested in getting rid of the cowboys. So the illegal immigration problems that they had were reversed to what we have today. You had American criminals going into Mexico because that's where all the cattle were. The cattle ranches had all been in Mexico, in northern Mexico, for generations. Southern Arizona, because of the Apache danger, was almost entirely depopulated. There were very, very few people in southern Arizona until the town of Tombstone was founded in the late 1870s. Pretty strange. So when did they finally set up any sort of a border there? The border, uh, there were border markers put in in later years. I believe those were put in in the late 1880s or 1890s. Uh, One of the famous gunfights in which old man Clampton uh, was killed. And and what happened here was that the uh, group of... uh, the Mexican citizens were so fed up with these raids that they went out <clears throat> with a group of Mexican militia and they came across old man Clanton and a group of about half a dozen men, some of whom were notorious murderers and members of the cowboys. Some of them were just innocent cowhands that happened to be with them and they ambushed them and, uh, and killed or wounded uh, everybody in this party, including old man Clanton, who was the father of Ike and Billy Clanton uh, of the OK Corral gunfight fame. And so that gunfight happened right near a marker for the uh, the border, happened just about 100 yards from it, but I don't think that marker existed, wasn't put in until later years. Hmm. Now, when you talk about police officers being prosecuted uh, uh, for just carrying out their official duty. What do you mean by that? Well, I have a, this is a sore spot with me. I was a police officer for eight years. I represented police officers for another 15 years as a young attorney. And uh, the traditional way of dealing with an officer who uses uh, excessive force in carrying out his lawful duties is uh, because a police officer has to make decisions uh, very, very quickly. And there are some types of uses of excessive force which deserve a criminal prosecution. One one example is the beating of Rodney King, uh, which triggered the L.A. riots in the early 90s. And the, the video shows these officers using this technique of just beating a man into submission with their nightsticks. And and this is like not and has never been proper police procedure. And and so that uh, prosecution, in my opinion, was entirely justified and warranted, and the fact that a jury walked those officers is mind-boggling to me. And then you compare that with the Freddie Gray case, where officers put Freddie Gray in the back of a paddy wagon and uh, drove him to the station, and he apparently he died in the back of the paddy wagon, and they prosecuted these officers for murder. I mean, when I was a cop, the paddy wagons had a metal bench, and you put the drunks in the back, and you drove them to the jail. And these officers were prosecuted for not putting a seat belt on, on the... Uh, on on Freddie Gray. And so the problem with that is, is that these officers may have made a mistake. Possibly they deserve to be disciplined 
30 days off, possibly firing, depending on the circumstances. But you don't prosecute a police officer for a crime for making some dumb error uh, when they're trying to carry out their lawful duties. So that is the problem that we see today over and over again. You see police officers um, where they make a decision under extreme stress, whether to fire or not fire. You cannot prosecute a police officer because he made a bad decision whether to shoot or not to shoot when he had one nanosecond to make that decision and then you have a jury debating for three or four or five days whether he made the right decision or not. That's not good governance. That's a very bad uh, uh, way to proceed. Uh, it discourages police officers from doing their job. And so now you have um, cities, and I won't name any names, but I have a lot of, lot of friends in law enforcement, and there are some uh, departments where the police officers have been so cowed that they sit in their patrol cars and they wait to answer radio calls, and that's bad police work. Police officers are paid to hit the road. You go out, you see felons, you stop them, you see what they're up to, you search them, and you confront street criminals, and you arrest the ones that you have probable cause to arrest. And uh, so you, you've got a, a type of um, uh, uh, what they now call de-policing, where it's almost reverse police work, where the police are now considered to be the criminals and they're assumed to have taken part in a bad shooting. And so this is nothing new. And as I point out in my book, after this gunfight that happened near the OK Corral, which was obviously a proper shooting, and I can go into that and explain for you, but there was a prosecution, and Wyatt Earp and his brothers and Doc Holliday were charged with murder and there was a month-long, basically what we call today a preliminary hearing, and the judge found that they had acted properly and they acted within the course and scope of their duties as law enforcement officers and found that they were not uh, guilty of murder. Well, what, what brought them to trial? Was it just that there was a, a lot of talk in the community, or what, what was it that uh, made it happen? You had a uh, situation in Tombstone where there were crooked uh, businessmen, uh, butchers who bought stolen cattle from the cowboys, uh, hotel keepers who rented rooms to them, saloon keepers and gambling houses that catered to the cowboys. The cowboys had a lot of money. They robbed and stole. And so they came into Tombstone. They showered Tombstone with stolen cash. And so you had people... Uh, who, for political expediency and financial expediency, accepted criminals in their community. And again, that's a danger we have today, where you've got uh, people that tend to take the word of criminals over police and side with criminals over police. So this is something that's nothing new. And in Tombstone, uh, you had a sheriff who was morally corrupt, Sheriff Bean who did nothing to stop these cowboys. And so uh, after the gunfight near the OK Corral, Sheriff Bean was one of the people that pressed to have the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday prosecuted for murder. Sound familiar? <laughs> now, the um, I was going to say that, um, oh, God, we had uh, um, the ex-police chief for Seattle Police Department on. 
And one of the points he brought up was uh, there was a lot of uh, inexperienced police as well. So um, there's nothing more dangerous than a scared cop. And, and it's a vicious circle because what yeah. happens is <clears throat> um, stop and frisk is one of the strongest police tools that exists. And it's been around since the earliest uh, police departments were formed in the United States. The first night and day police departments formed in Baltimore, Boston, New York City in the 1830s and 1840s. And so you had community policing, which was the only kind of policing they had back then. And they would see characters that they knew were up to no good that were um, criminals. And the officers on the beat would stop them, see what they're doing, make a search. And if they're breaking the law, they'd arrest them. Now, don't get me wrong. There were a lot of abuses. There was vagrancy statutes where they would even arrest people. They had ugly statutes where sometimes they could even arrest people that uh, didn't look nice in public. Uh, so there were a lot of abuses. But what you've uh, got today is a situation where the officers are not supposed to stop and confront known felons. And I'm not talking about harassing ethnic minorities, but when you see a couple known felons driving around your beat and you don't do anything about it, in my opinion, you're not, you're a police officer, you're not doing your job. And today, though, the young officers, and again, this is just my opinion, people will argue about this, but the young officers are prohibited from doing the kind of police work that we used to do. And when I was a police officer, I would make repeated stops over and over and over again. I knew most of the criminals. I, I worked in this uh, city of San Mateo and in, on the San Francisco Peninsula. We had about 120 officers. So it was a you know, smaller, medium-sized city. And uh, we would you know, be uh, assertive. I don't like the term aggressive, but assertive in confronting street criminals in, in, in order to protect your community. And the officers today, if they don't have experience, it's because they're prohibited from doing that. And so in my case, I drew my gun on criminal suspects hundreds of times and never fired it ever. And there's no, um, there's no substitute. The you can get all the training in the world, but it doesn't substitute for making hundreds of felony arrests making hundreds of felony car stops and you get that experience and you get to be able to do this stuff in a very calm and deliberative manner and so my concern is today that you've got this double-edged sword where the officers are prevented from doing assertive police work and then suddenly they're put into a situation where they have to use force and then they freak out and they use excessive force or they fire when they shouldn't fire. And so those, are, to me, it's a vicious circle and a, da yeah. and, a, and a very dangerous circle. Oh, it is. And, and, and you know, th there's also a sense of um, community. Like, it's funny, when I'm in uh, my Canada residence and I'm uh, around, it seems like uh, Canada's, under policed it's hard to find police and when you do they're really part of the community the rcmp you, you know them you talk to them they're your neighbors it seems to be very um it's not as formal when i'm down in seattle or la um, interactions with the police tend to be more formal more distant um you don't 
there's not like this kinship that I would expect there should be because they're there to help society run coherent, you know, in, in, a, in an orderly fashion. So I'm not sure where that comes from. And I think some of it is a result of this uh, anti-police atmosphere that we find ourselves in, especially in the last five or ten years. The uh, Most police officers, uh, I think, when they the, – the, the, the typical car stop has generally been – the American citizens most often way that they meet a policeman and it's a bad way to meet a cop because he's about to give you a ticket and it's going to cost you three or four hundred dollars or more and it's a very tense situation so what I did personally was we were under no uh, pressure when I worked to write any kind of tickets at all I would never cite somebody for anything unless they were really, really did some horribly dangerous thing. So I would pull people over, I'd stop, get their driver's license, explain to them what they did, tell them, please have a nice day, Don't please don't do this anymore. And I think you get a lot of um, a PR benefit from doing things like that. But then you have politicians that want, especially here in California, we've had these red light cameras installed all over the state. Now, thank goodness, they're being pulled out and in my opinion, they do nothing to provide for safety, and they're a revenue-generating thing for the uh, politicians and for the city managers. And all they do is they make people mad at the police, and they have these outrageous, uh, outrageously expensive fines. And so that's one of the problems with policing is that you have this revenue generation where the officers are supposed to cite people so they can get the money, and then it's again, it's a double-edged sword because it, it 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 tells people the police are mean, and they're really not. The average cop is a good guy, and he wouldn't be our woman. You know, uh, another great thing about police work today is that so many women have gone into policing, and I think that's the hope for the future because women, for and maybe this is sexist for me to say this, but women are not menacing when they approach. I think most. Uh, people uh, don't see a woman officer as a menacing or threatening type of uh, character. No. The, the only menacing ones I is when I'm going back and forth across the border. Never choose a woman border agent. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Send your hate mail to John. <laughs> Give me his email. No. Now, now, uh, what do you want people to get out of reading this book? When they walk away, what's, what, what do you want them to feel? Well, I think the uh, for me it was a chance to tell this story that hadn't been told before. Uh, Wyatt Earp today uh, is either vilified as this horribly bad man who murdered these innocent cowpunchers at the OK Corral, or he's seen as this paragon of American virtue. You know, there was a famous TV series. The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, starring Hugh O'Brien. That was the most popular TV show in America back in the 1950s. And uh, so Wyatt Earp, those are the two extremes. I wanted to show the fair story about Wyatt Earp. And at the end, I don't mean to get too political here, but uh, it is a real sore spot with me about this, these misunderstandings of American law enforcement uh, people that don't know the first thing about police work are making 
protocols for American policing. Uh, you've got uh, uh, attorneys who make their living suing the police involved in setting up protocols on how law enforcement is supposed to happen. These are really, really bad ideas. And so I saw an opportunity at the end of the book to show that these things are nothing new. They've been around uh, for 130 or more years in our country's history, 150 years. And so uh, hopefully cooler heads will prevail. People will go back, see what happened in Tombstone, and say, yeah, you know, this is the way law enforcement is supposed to happen. Well, we can hope, but, uh, you know, maybe in the future, right now it seems to be a lot of people like to just rally behind groups. It's not even, it doesn't even have to be political. It's just, um, they just want to call, uh, call out, uh, you know, it's all police or it's all Republicans or all conservatives or liberals or whatever, right? So No, and it's, I always tell people the, you know, the far left and the far right, the most uh, extreme conservative that I can think of is Adolf Hitler, and the most extreme liberal I can think of is Joseph Stalin, and they were both the same. So I think if you stay the course, stay in the middle, you can't go wrong. Oh, exactly. So now do you have a website people can come find you at? No, I got no website. They, they can get the book on Amazon. I guess I'm too old-fashioned. I, I, maybe I should get a website. But the book's available on Amazon. Well, fantastic. We will actually have your book posted on our website as well, so people can do one click when they're listening. That would be great. No problem there. So now our guest has been the author of Ride the Devil's Herd, and that's Wyatt Earp's epic battle against the West's biggest outlaw gang. John Bosnecker, thanks very much for being on the show. Okay, thank you so much. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.